0: Series of podcasts, we're speaking to different people about the things that make a difference between the best athletes in the world and the ones who are very good but not quite there. And today I'm absolutely wrapped to be able to speak with Matt Lancaster. Matt Lancaster is a physio, he's based in Hobart, but Matt has been to two Olympic Games first in 2008 as the physio with the British athletics team in Beijing, and then more recently with the Australian athletics team in London in 2012. Uh, Matt's also been physio at World Championship Games, and even more recently still, we've had the pleasure of having him involved in golf. And it's been quite... Educational for me to see Matt working. And Matt, thanks for giving your time today. And I'm looking forward to hearing of some of the things that you see that you're, of course, able to tell us about the differences between athletes who are absolutely the best in the world and those who are not quite there. So welcome. Fantastic. Great to speak, Peter. Your background's in athletics, but I'm assuming across sports and with different uh, podcasts that I've already done that there are principles that are the same from one sport and transferable into others. So in the, I guess, the cauldron of World Championship Athletics and and Olympic Athletics, what are the things that you've noticed about those who are the best? And I'm I'm guessing that they're going to be the ones who are going to finish up with gold medals around their neck at the end of the the Games.
1: Yeah, look, you're right Um, in the terms that there there are clearly characteristics that go with those people who, who dominate. And and thinking about, you know, our conversation, one of those things that strikes me is that sometimes those characteristics are actually observed in people who aren't quite at that point as well and maybe are people who are on a journey on the on the way there. Um, athletics is a sport... Um, yeah, is is very statistically driven. You, mm. you know what somebody's best performance has been um, through a time that they've run, how far or high they've jumped, how far they've thrown, and and those statistics don't necessarily lie in terms of where somebody's at in terms of their their performance. But the thing that really defines those those people who go on to succeed and, and win medals is, is the fact that they produced those performances absolutely at the time that matters. Um, the overriding principle of high-performance sport is your ability to perform in the moment and and at the time. And I think those characteristics can actually go to people who perhaps aren't going to have quite the same success as well. And and what strikes me when when people go to a championship in in a sport like athletics that that is so statistically driven in terms of describing people's performance is that there are are almost three groups of people that that go. There There are the people who are... Who are realistically are not going to make a final and are not going to compete for a medal, and and that probably is the majority of people who go to Olympic Games. If your personal best has been 10.2 seconds in 100 metres, um, and and that that describes your performance, it's it's absolutely unrealistic that you're suddenly going to run 9.9 seconds and and make the final and then run in current World Times, 9.6 seconds and, and win a medal. So there are a group of people who, I guess, go to major competitions knowing that they're they're not going to win. There are a second group of people who I think are, are the group of people who, if things go well for them, can make a final and who knows on the day. And they're the people that we get seduced by a little bit because they're the people that that we almost hope do well. And then there are that third group, and, and it's a pretty small group, and these are the outstanding people that, that I think you're interested in. And they're the people who go to genuinely compete to win a medal and ultimately ultimately win. Um, so I think there are those three groups of people. And if I think about what describes those people, I think there are, there are almost sort of three sets of characteristics that, that go there as well. But I don't think they're... They're necessarily tied into that performance level. Most characteristics are that I think there are a group of people who are happy to be there. And that that will go across those three groups. There will be people who maybe have made their first team for them, for their club, for their family. It's a a fantastic thing. And they genuinely are happy to be there. There are a group of people who are living in a world that I guess is described almost by hope. Mm. And, And their language is very different. And they're the group of people who are hoping that things go well. If I get a good throw out, I can make the final, and who knows what happens then. If I get a good lane draw, if I get a good heat, things can happen. And there's a a great sense of hope about that group of people. Then there's a group of people, and I think these are the the people that, that you are really interested in in terms of those outstanding performers, and they're the people that I think go with an expectation, and they've removed that sense of hope. It doesn't mean they don't have nervousness. I'm sure it doesn't mean they don't have self-doubt, but there's an absolute expectation about what their performance is going to be. Mm. Um, and I almost tend to think that you can get people across those sort of three levels of performance ability showing those different characteristics, characteristics as well. I think there are probably some some people who have an amazing amount of talent who still live in the world of hope or who still exhibit characteristics that are happy to be there. And the mm. people whose... Talent and performance maybe suggest that they should be competing for medals, but when they actually get to that big moment and that big stage, they're not not showing characteristics of somebody who expects to do well and has a genuine internally driven belief that they're they're still either happy to be there or living in hope. And I think at the same time you can also get some, some people whose performance level suggests they might not win a medal, but who still have a high degree of expectation that they're going to perform in the moment, to the best of their ability. And they might be the people who come back with personal bests in a championship but still means they don't win a medal, but they've performed really well relative to their, their ability. So for me, the the dominant character of those people who absolutely succeed is that there's an expectation when they get to that point and to that moment that they will succeed.
0: It's interesting with those, those three groups that you talk about, and it makes me think the first group, the group that are happy to be there, it's almost like... They have the mental capacity to get the most out of their skills, which are going to be brilliant, but they're just not they're not medalist skills. So skill wise, they're not quite there, but mentally they're there. The second group, the ones that probably should have higher expectations than what they do, it's like they have the skills but they don't necessarily have all of the, the mental capacity, the mindset capacity, and then you've got the third group that's got both. Is that yeah, how you
1: say it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and yeah. I, I think you see that then then manifesting in in their behaviours associated with their profession. And I guess, you know, I'm fortunate that I have been able to see people quite close to, you know, those ultimate performance times, um, and you start to see in, in that group who who are the high performing group with an expectation, um, a real, and I would use the word intent in their the late stages of their preparation. That they they along with their coach know what's happening when they go to training. They know what they need to get out of training, um, and those final sessions, they're not panicking about those sessions, and they're they're almost going through a final stage of confirmation based on what it is that they need to do. There's a there's a story that is a secondhand story for me, but I, I think it's fantastic of a, somebody who was a colleague of mine who was uh, watching a, a training session of a of a, a triple jumper who um, at the time and still is the the greatest triple jumper in history Uh, and the story that was told to me was uh, that uh, this person took uh, 20 minutes to lace their shoes up at the beginning of the session and my colleague was watching them and really wanted to see what was going to happen in this one of these late training sessions for this fantastic athlete and after his 20 minutes the, the athlete measured out his run up which took a long time and he'd already warmed up at that stage. Ran in towards the the triple jump takeoff, took off with the hop, the first phase, then ran through the pit, uh, didn't complete the full triple jump, and uh, and went and sat down and took his shoes off again. And my colleague was sitting there thinking, this is terrible, I'm going to have to watch another 20 minutes of putting shoes back on before the second effort, Mm -hmm. and uh, and finally went over and and spoke to the athlete. And the athlete said, no, no, I've, I've finished my session. I just needed to know that my run-up was right, and that was all it <laughs> was. So he only needed one piece of information which really was, I guess, confirming for him where his expectations sat. So there was a an incredible intent, I guess in in what he did and I'll see that in, in other people as well, that they will you know they'll they'll agree that they'll have a certain number of throws in the training session. and I guess the people who live in hope, um, I think you observed going out to those last training sessions, trying to throw their gold medal winning glory throw in one of their final training sessions. And when it's not happening, they'll just keep fighting and struggling and getting angry and, and it becomes a, a really futile process. I think those people who are living in that world of expectation, you know, get to those final sessions and there's no great hope about it and they want to get something specific out of it they don't need to throw their gold medal throw then. They they have an acceptance that their preparation work is fundamentally done, and that there's no need to panic at that stage. And it, they're very different behaviours to observe people uh, in terms of those final preparation and, and training um, habits and, and behaviours. I think the group who are happy to be there, you observe a really lacklustre approach to those final preparation sessions where. And, and it's hard to think at an Olympic level, but, but it starts to look a lot more random and you're not really quite sure that just observing that, that they're, what they're trying to achieve in those final training sessions and where they fit into their, their preparation. So there's an enormous difference in, in the things that people actually do, I think, uh, around those late stages.
0: We can relate that so clearly to golf too. You know, golf tournaments, uh, players... The evening before the first round, they might have had their final practice round. It may not have gone as well as what they'd like. And so then they'll spend, you know, four hours practicing after they've played A&E in holes. So they're going to come to the first tee the following day, regardless of how their practice session's gone, just with a lot of fatigue and uh, unless they found the magic in the practice, they're going to come in with a lot of doubts as well. So it's sort of clearly they're in the, well, they're either in the first or the second group.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Look, and there's a there's an enormous capacity and this certainly isn't an original thought amongst um you know successful sports people that they they often get over their, their disappointments very quickly mm. and that there's almost a sense of um almost you want to use the word denial about that sometimes. I think the people who have the expectation that they'll perform really well and and if we relate it to that example of your final practice round mm. isn't isn't a particularly good round. I think they manage almost to reach a point of very quick denial mm. about how bad that round was so they can then turn to the next one. I, I think you see that in successful you know, cricket batsmen who you know, play and miss and have a, a capacity to completely forget about that and concentrate on the next ball. And I think that's very different to somebody Maybe who lives in the world of hope or is happy to be there, who then dwells on the fact that they've missed a the ball and and becomes very edgy and nervous for, for the next one. And I think you see all those characteristics in, you know, something as straightforward as, you know, I have to run faster than than somebody who beat me last week. Nothing's dramatically changed between those two people over the course of a of a week. So there, there has to be, you know, almost a denial that that happened and just a, an internally driven expectation on on what can happen and what can turn that performance around
0: mm. there's more and more involvement with sports science and also sports medicine in clubs that you know the more money they have the more the more they're expending on those services and so that's an acknowledgement of the importance of physical ability but from the sports med side it's also an acknowledgement that things can and do go wrong athletes are going to get injured and then they're going to go through the process of having to um, see experts like you in a physio session or physio sessions to get better. How do the best athletes approach that when they do encounter injury?
1: Um, I need to give you two answers on on this, I think, and the the first one is the answer that, as a physiotherapist and somebody in that support team, um, I would like to think of the normal practice, and, and then I'll give you a second scenario. And I guess the... And there are cases and I can 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 think of a number of examples of where people almost approach that rehabilitation process in in the same way that you know the good performers do. Yeah. That they stop living in a in a world of hope and hoping that they get better. And they there's something and they also take responsibility for their own involvement in that process. Again, they're eternal attributors, so I guess at that point. Um, and so it becomes quite a, quite a systematic approach. So, you know, in a, in a perfect world, it quickly starts with a sense of diagnosis, some sense of prognosis, you know, in, a, in a, a good performing, high performance team, there will be input from Athlete and coach, as well as a range of sports, medicine, physiotherapy, strength and conditioning, other mm. practitioners, um, rehabilitation plan happens. The athlete commits to that rehabilitation plan. There are there are markers on the way through. We can measure progress. And as we get closer, we can start working backwards to from the performance time and, and start to give it a nice, clear, clear pattern. And and that can work, and it does work. And um, for athletes who can I guess, overcome the self-doubt that comes through that period, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge, who can delay their, their need for almost reward based on their status as an athlete, so they can accept, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do today performance-wise, in three weeks, two months, I'll be able to do this. So that, that process works really well. And, and I can think of a number of athletes who who ultimately have gone on to win medals on the back of pretty limited preparations because during that rehabilitation process, they haven't panicked. They really have followed a process. They've they've found alternative ways, with input from other people, to maintain some degree of fitness. They have maintained a a mental process that that is still focused on their their performance on the way through, and and it works spectacularly. So I guess that's the uh, that's the scenario that as a, a member of a, a support team you'd like to think happens. There, there's a second reality, though. Um, particularly as you get close to outstanding performers who, who have a couple of things. One, they have a lot of people who are interested in throwing resources at them. And the second is they have a lot of money to be able to source their own resources as well. And that process can start to become quite random because all of a sudden there can become a lot of opinions and sport is sport is attractive to all sorts of people, and sport attracts people who who want to be associated who um, you know for for good motivation and and sometimes i guess for their own sense of personal reward as well so there's there's enormous responsibility on on an athlete with resources with lots of opinion flying at them to be able to sensibly manage that and it becomes very easy to get caught up in a, a world of gurus offering fantastic solutions and, you know, magic potions and instant cures on the next machine, and you don't need to see that. And athletes, you know, who are, who are financially, you know, able to do it will, will travel from country to country doing that. You know, I can, I can think of an athlete who is known to have, been, you know, in a day travelled from, a, you know, a doctor in, in Germany to... Um, a therapist in Ireland to an osteopath in another country and to a podiatrist in Belgium. And unfortunately, through that whole process, a recent diagnosis was all overlooked. So there's a, a degree of panic that sets in, um, and sometimes it's not a smooth process, and they are dangers in, inherent mm-hmm. in that. The other behaviour that sometimes comes out of that um, is that you have people who are these high performers who are normally very internally driven and attribute their their success, their failures internally, start so to become very externally driven. They tend to want to to blame others and very quick to to cast doubt on on management strategies as soon as there's a, a chink in a rehabilitation process to cast blame, etc. So it can be a challenging time for athletes and, and I guess my 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 over thoughts around that are that that athletes should be heavily involved in, in their own injury process and they need to take responsibility for that but they do need to have a group of people who they trust and one of the, the qualities is, that is essential in that group of people they trust is that um, those people are prepared to seek opinion elsewhere as well and, yeah. and not feel that they need to control that process at the exclusion of, of what might be other good opinion as well. So I think Injury becomes one of those times where some of these outstanding achievers, uh, their world can be turned upside down. And it's, uh, it can be a real a real fork in the road moment, I think, for people uh, to be able to negotiate that process. Hmm.
0: I noticed on your website you have a, a program for runners, recreational runners. Uh, I'm assuming that, that that would go through to good runners. And it's interesting that you're looking at the preventative side of, uh, of training. Now, I'm assuming. I guess this is a statement, but also a question. Is what's what's your approach around the preventative side of things and educating athletes that you know physio is more than just waiting for someone to, to fix you up once you get sick or sore.
1: Yeah, look, in, injury prevention is the you know it's the golden goose that that everybody looks for. How can we stop people getting injured? And and I guess there's. There's been a big swing towards you know, accepting that the amount of training that people do and the volume of training, etc., is important. But I think the other thing that is, is is really central to this is is a really mature approach to to where, if you like, responsibility sits for, for athletes breaking down. And I don't know that sports medicine and physiotherapy has been has necessarily helped itself. Uh, you know, historically trying to take responsibility for injury prevention. The reality is that a doctor and a physiotherapist have probably never caused a major injury to an athlete in a training environment. they that tended to pick up the pieces, and, and at best we can give advice about ways to try and prevent that, and we mm. need to make that evidence based on all those sorts of things. So the, the more mature approach, I guess, is it, what we start seeing happening, certainly in, in professional team sports, where they have big full-time staff providing support is that injury prevention becomes a shared responsibility. It becomes a shared responsibility between the, the sports medicine, sports, sports science staff, but the conditioning and the coaching staff, the athlete himself, have to be really integral to that process as well. So there's a, there's a responsibility on, on the athlete to be reporting and, and lots of sporting environments... Will do that quite quite formally if they if they are able to um, to be monitoring the amount of activity that the athlete has to be developing, I guess some evidence based protocol over a period of time that that describes how much activity we think is reasonable and and at what point that starts to become become dangerous and, and risky, but accepting but shifting I guess from the model and. Yeah, and it's been the clearly expressed model by coaches I've worked with in the past that, you know, you know, from a coach's perspective, look, I break them, you fix them, and and, and historically that's been the case. And and the notion that you know that you can parachute on top of that an injury prevention strategy doesn't work. So the only way that that there can be some some move forward in terms of trying to prevent injuries is that coaches and athletes really buying to the the basis that you know. Injury prevention is, is a crucial part of performance, and I guess you know we and we always need better statistics to support this. I think with athletics, the you know the sports science and sports medicine team would take an approach that if we can have an athlete performing eighty percent of the training eighty percent of the time, they they're going to perform better than an athlete who's, who who goes mm. bullet the gate and can do a hundred percent of training for four weeks and then misses the next six. And you see athletes going through these cycles, um, so. You know, at, a, at a at an elite level, it's a very shared responsibility, and it needs to be shared responsibility where value is placed on the health of athletes, and the, the clear link is made between their health and the performance outcomes. I guess at a at a recreational and sub elite level, and, and that's private practice for, for many people. And you talk about our, our running program. Um, I guess that's a, that's very much an education process as well, and, and obviously it's not a, a full team, but it's again. Uh, getting people to realise that, you know, if it isn't based around running, that you know, if running is a really important thing to them, then, then those same principles apply. You know, you, you need to listen to your body. You need to be aware that you can't just increase how much running volume you want to do ad nauseum. You can't suddenly just run up heels every day of the week and not expect outcomes. But how you move and the quality of your movement and and your technique and all those things can, can come involved as well. Um, you know, as a clinician, I... I Really enjoy working with that recreational sub-elite group because quite often they're they're a bit of a sponge and they're, they're open to those ideas and it gives gives me an enormous amount of satisfaction to to bump into people you know, in Hobart these days at, at some of our big fun runs and you know I have known that over the last twelve months they've had a, an injury-free running period that their running techniques changed a little bit and they back off when they start to feel a little bit sore and, and they're enjoying that that period generally so so I think. A, you know, a big role for physio is in, in injury prevention, but certainly in the elite level, it, it can't work in isolation. It has to be part of the team, and the coach and the athlete need to be fully buying into to the value and the importance of that approach.
0: Over the last few years with uh, golf in Australia, uh, we've looked to take a more integrated approach. And so for the last 12 months, you've been involved with the Tasmanian group of players, along with strength conditioning coach and the coaches. And it's interesting that uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to witness the work that you do. I think it's absolutely fa- fabulous. And one of the things that I also look for is I look to see how the athletes respond to, to the different coaches. And, and, I, and I would class you as, as a coach, as a physiotherapist, uh, because it's more than just the, the techniques that you do. But tell us about how you see that integration between physio and strength and conditioning when it comes to golfers.
1: I think historically those things have been delineated, and, and probably some some bad sort of stereotypes that have, have sat around that. but you know, I guess that physios have done cute stuff, and strength and conditioning guys have you know, just focused on developing big muscles. And the reality is that I think where practice has moved in the sporting context is that that there's a there's a there's a lot more alignment in in starting point and thinking, so that the notion of their strength without good quality movement you know, is is reasonably pointless and useless. So there's a there's an enormous overlap now in I think the way that we start to. Look at look at the quality of movement. Look at people's ability to to move, to control, to stabilise, to have strength, to have power. And, and there are there are some common threads that go right through those things. So it just makes sense to me to to be integrating the way that we look at those things. I think the other thing that that's important that we integrate is that if we if we're giving interventions, so we're asking athletes to do programs that they don't have three or four standalone programs so that they have their, you know, maybe some technical drills from their from their, their golf coach, that they have a conditioning program from a strength conditioning coach and then they have some physio exercises from a physio. It, it makes far more sense that, you know, they have a golf package, that they have a training program. But that training program has, as I said before, I think a golden thread between those different areas that they're moving on that really should, should link up. So... You know the, the strategies I guess that I look at as a, as a physio should tie in with their conditioning and that really should all be their support, their development as a golfer, which becomes the, the performance focus. So I guess in, in the way that I look at these things, I, I think performance drives it, um, but I think some of those finer things that we look at, if we want to call it that, whether they're injury prevention or, or whatever it might be, that, that really should target that, that golden thread that moves towards um, performance as well. I think, I think we've been lucky in the group of providers we've had with that Tasmanian group, and I, I'd like to think that that's working around the country through through Gulf Australia system now as well, that, that there are people who are open-minded to work together, because the reality is that while the, the best model has to be a collaborative approach, it, it can be awkward as well. Um, you know, It becomes more opinions, um, it becomes potentially sources of conflict, so... there there needs to be a really good team uh, approach to the way that that we support those golfers, and and I think we've had that in in the group that we've had so far.
0: Yeah. Now, the majority of listeners are not going to be part of a national squad. They're not going to be professional athletes. They're going to be, you know, people who want to play well. They want to do their best to stay injury-free, and, of course, golf, where you can play for, you know, half a century or more, the the likeest reality is that you know injury could kick in at some time. So for players, say club golfers through to you know good players, those who don't have the resources that the the best have, what advice do you have about how they should work with uh, with a physio on just generally making themselves better golfers and more healthy people?
1: Yeah I think I think there are two things to do there. The first, I guess centres around injury, uh, and that's to that's to act early. Um, you know, we have a whole, if we, if we look at golf injuries, you know, the majority of them, you know, almost exclusively are going to be repetitive overuse injuries rather than acute traumatic injuries. Now, they're things that, that we get early flags for sometimes. So that might be, you know, a couple of consecutive rounds where you're, you're noticing, you know, some wrist soreness. It might be all of a sudden aware that you have back pain and it's lasting a couple of days after you've played a round. There, there, there are normally some, some warning signs and, and so what I'd urge people to do is, is not to ignore those but to act early. Now in the first mm-hmm. instance that might mean backing off for five or seven days and and then trying again but don't don't keep persisting, don't let something that, that maybe could have been uh, nipped in the bud if you'd uh, taken the opportunity to, to seek some professional advice early, um, don't let that fester into something that ultimately becomes harder to manage and, mm-hmm. and might mean a, a far longer period of rest and, and rehabilitation um, further down the line. So, so that would be my first point. The second one I guess is, and this is the, the hard point I think uh, across all recreational and sub-elite sports people, and that's, that's actually dedicating a little time to to prepare your body. Um, so that's that's time, not swinging a club I guess that I'm talking about. Um, now a, a physiotherapist or a, or a well qualified conditioning coach, uh, should be able to work with you to identify a few points that are maybe areas of of weakness or vulnerability for you and come up with a strategy. And that strategy usually will be exercise-based and it might be increasing mobility, it might be increasing strength, it won't be arduous, but it might be that you need to, a couple of times a week, allow 20 or 30 minutes to be doing something that helps maintain prepare your body For what you you go and do on the weekend and and it's hard to find that time. What it's best though is that the benefit of of doing that isn't just injury prevention. And again, I'll come back to this notion of the golden thread between, you know, how you move and the quality of your movement, you know, for injury prevention reasons also hopefully has an impact on performance. So I would like to think that if you uh, have, have targeted conditioning exercises, mobility exercises, but they're things that are going to help your golf game as well and ultimately that will become more rewarding. And on that, the experience of a couple of the the Tasmanian boys who are involved in the program who who now have very structured warm-ups each time they go and play is how much better they feel when they first get onto the golf course how much better they hit the ball because they have a a process that that actually values looking after their body
0: rather than just going out and hitting balls, and and I think I think recreational players can do that as well. Exactly, Matt, you've given us some tremendous advice. I really appreciate it. And for you know anybody particularly who's in Tassie or even more specifically in Hobart, uh, that if you're looking to do things like learn warm ups that are going to be specific for you and for your game. Or if unfortunately you do have some injury that you need to get sorted out, then certainly see Matt Lancaster at AllCare Physio. Matt, thank you so much for your time. And Great. Uh, thanks, mate. yeah, and you know, good luck continued work with the uh, with the golf programs. Great, thanks very much.